Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, from my personal mobile studio. Today is September 30th, 2000. And nine. This is episode 287, and today is a Wednesday. We've reached hump day as we go through our week. It is uh, once again beautiful out. It is once again hard to drive up to the office because I'd rather be home. Uh, last night, I actually spent some time in the backyard not doing anything that we call prepping, but improving uh, my bird feeders. I brought in some new bird feeders, got rid of some old ones, had a little fire with uh, the cedar wood from the ones that had been there about oh, five years. They looked pretty rough and uh, threw those in my fire pit and sat out, had a couple beers and listened to some country music on the radio. It was a good night. Um, tonight I'll be back out there, but tonight I'll be starting some more lettuce seeds for the winter garden. So just a little update on what Jack's been doing day-to-day here. Uh, Another quick update. I um, have uploaded the new 30-minute video on building a three-part uh, composting system. Uh, I should have that available to members of the Members Brigade before the end of the day today. So that is, uh, that's a big deal for us. We think that's one of the best videos we've ever done. Uh, really gives you a lot of information. And of course, if you're not a Members Brigade member, we're going to be allowing you to purchase that. Haven't decided on the price exactly how I'm going to do that yet, but that'll be by the end of the week. Alright, so enough for Jack's little personal update. Let's get on with uh, the housekeeping today. Number one, make sure you're supporting our advertisers and i got something cool for you guys today with ready-made resources uh, i always tell you to download their solar and alternative energy catalog because there's so much information in about there about design and components and stuff but uh, they just brought out a new product i wanted to make you aware of it's called the lifesaver 4000 bottle and it it filters water but what's cool about it is it uses a 0.015 micron filter Well, that's smaller than any bacteria or virus, so this is the only filter uh, that I know of anyway that's capable of filtering water no matter what its source and making it safe to drink. The filter is so fine that nothing gets through. I want you to check that out. I'll put a link today. Another thing is, I didn't know this, they're giving away a Columbia River knife and a drawing, and you can enter for that. I'll put a link in the show notes to their uh, to their drawing for that. Uh, go, go sign up for their drawing, man. That's a beautiful knife. Why don't you take a look at it? Uh, next uh, sponsor of the day is SQA Experts. These guys make a really unique piece of body armor. Uh, it's something I want you to take a look at. I had somebody on the forum say, can't I just hang my vest over my arm? And No, take a look at the piece of equipment and see how it works and uh, how much cover that it gives you uh, in a move-and-shoot situation. I think this is something for uh, civilians that are concerned about uh, hardening of uh, uh, a home. And I think it's definitely something if you're in law enforcement uh, or private security you really should look into. All right, so that wraps up our sponsors. Make sure you get involved with our forum. Uh, 
I'll tell you what, our forum is growing like crazy. It may be the fastest growing forum uh, in the preparedness industry online. There's no way for me to be sure of that, but it sure looks like it is. And we just crossed our 100,000th post, so that's pretty cool. So get involved. Be part of the forum. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, including that uh, 30-minute video segment that uh, is going up today, uh, along with a bunch of other stuff. And uh, the retail value is about 70 bucks now, so your first year is more than covered in free giveaways. So with that, let's get on to today's topic. I decided to uh, try to come up with a completely new topic, something we've never really talked about before. And I guess sort of we've talked about this, because I've talked about, you know, homesteading in suburbia and urban environments. But today what I'm going to talk about is homesteading on small land tracts, regardless of where they are. Whether it's a half of half of an acre in the middle of uh, suburbia, or an acre and a half out in the middle of nowhere. And some different ideas on both of those settings. But basically I want to talk to you today about getting a smaller piece of land that a lot of us think of when we think of a homestead. And some of the inherent advantages to that small piece of land. I know a lot of us dream of that 20 acres or that 40 acres, and even with my little five-acre place up in Arkansas, that sounds pretty big. I'm going to tell you why it's not as big as it sounds today, at least from a uh, a managed land perspective of how it's actually going to be when I'm done with it, uh, and where it might as well be two acres for the places on it that I'm really going to spend a lot of time improving and, and taking care of. And uh, But even with that piece of land, I know that when I start scanning rural real estate, uh, if I go on a place like UnitedCountry.com, which you can spend a whole day wasted there looking at rural property across the country, country, I have a tendency, anytime I see something with like 15 or 20 acres, to definitely look at it, no matter what the picture of the house looks like. You know, I have that dream of that big piece of land, too. And there's a reason for it. But I think my reasoning also pushes you back to why small pieces of land make sense. If I got, you know, lucky and found a beautiful piece of land, everything's right, and it's got 60 acres, a really big piece of land, I'm still only going to be really working when it comes to agriculture and homesteading and stuff with a couple acres of that. The reason I would like 60 acres is I want it for wildlife management. I want to manage it for squirrels and turkey and deer, and I want a couple hunting stands out there on it, and I, I don't want people close to me, uh, but it's going to stay, and I might thin out some areas and make it more accessible, but I, I'm not going to turn it into, um, you know, 40 acres of uh, cultivated uh, permaculture, and I'm not going to have, you know, that piece of land end up looking like a farm. The reason I want that bigger piece of land is only because of what it affords me from a recreational standpoint, from a security standpoint, which there's a plus and minus there, and having access to a piece of property like that that's in a wild state. And I think a lot of us think that way. I think a lot of us, we're not looking for a 40-acre farm. We're looking for 40 acres in the woods, and we want to maybe open up one or two acres of it. Well, in certain situations, you can basically get the same thing, but you only own two acres of it and, or an acre of it. And we're going to talk about the advantages of that today. Let's just start off with kind of a generic view that doesn't really matter whether you're in the suburbs or whether you're out in the sticks about smaller pieces of land and what the advantages of them are. 
first and foremost, they're a lot easier to manage. It's a, it's a lot easier to manage an acre than it is to manage 40 acres. You can't manage 40 acres if you're putting four, 30 of it into agriculture without machinery. It cannot be done unless you have you know a little uh, a little commune going on with uh, 40 people working those 40 acres. You know, one per person. It's still going to be tough. Um, you're still going to probably need a couple pieces of equipment. Even the Amish use tractors, right? I think they do anyway. That's who I think I see in those black things driving with the orange triangle on them in the Dutch country. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But my understanding is that even the, the Amish use a tractor occasionally just to, to, to farm. So if you're going to go to that size of a piece of land for agricultural purposes or livestock purposes, it's going to necessitate bringing in equipment. All right? Um, if you do it with an acre or two, you might get a couple pieces of equipment to make your life easier, but they're going to be comparatively inexpensive small pieces of equipment. And what you can do on a couple acres of land with something as simple as a pretty beat-up used bobcat machine and a few attachments is quite impressive from the standpoint of digging ponds and moving things around and being able to haul stuff. And, you know, honestly, even a four-wheeler with a, with a plow blade attachment to it could do an awful lot for you on a small piece of land like that. Uh, where a bigger piece of land, you're going to need more equipment. It's going to take more work. It's going to take more time. And I think a lot of people end up going out and buying that 20 or 40 acre spread, and they dream of turning it into a micro farm. And because they don't really have any experience farming, and they don't have any experience with farm equipment, and they're not, they don't really have it in their head what that would actually look like, they end up only utilizing a couple acres of it anyway. A two acre micro farm, folks, or a mini farm, I guess you'd call it two acres, can produce a hell of a lot. Way more than you can use, trust me. And that's something I think we need to get our heads. I also think the other thing, especially when we start talking about going down that small tract of land, let's say an acre. Now, if you have an acre of land, there's a footprint in your house, take some of it up. If you put in a chicken coop and some composting bins and some fruit trees and some shrubs and things, uh, it's easy to imagine you might end up down to maybe a half acre of it left to work with for true cultivation, maybe a driveway, uh, a pond, other water features, what have you. So now you're down to a half acre. Well, as you go out and create, you know, your raised beds or your planting areas and you create pathways in between there, maybe you end up, and you know, just not actually going 100% with it, maybe you end up putting a quarter acre under cultivation. Uh, that is a lot. A quarter acre under cultivation is bigger than most suburban lots. Most suburban lots run between 0.10 or a, you know, a tenth of an acre to 0.15. Okay, 0.10 to 0.15 of an acre, your average suburban lot uh, in America today. So you're talking almost two to two and a half suburban lots under cultivation. That's a lot. But I'll tell you what you can do on, on a piece of land that size is it's pretty easy to improve soil. So it opens up buying mountain land that has really silica, clay-based soil that's not the greatest soil in the world. You can't turn 40 acres of that um, 
in a reasonable amount of time into fertile ground. Now you can. It can be done through permaculture techniques, large-scale permaculture techniques. You can bring in heavy equipment, put swales in. You can plant a food forest. You can do the legumes and the chop and drop. And eventually, you can terraform that land. But it's not easy to do and it takes a long time. And it can't be done by bringing in two or three dump truck loads of good organic soil and putting in raised beds and then starting to work from there because you can't bring that much soil in. It, it's, it's cost prohibitive at that size. But if you're going to do a quarter acre and you're going to start out with, uh, with maybe uh, a third of that that you're going to work on intensively, you can bring in enough soil to put in six inches of depth and to raise systems on that quarter acre and get a really good start going. And then kind of branch off from there, and as you start to produce organic matter, start to improve the soil throughout the property. And it's reasonable to think that a family, even just a family of two, a husband and wife, can really terraform an acre or two over five to ten years. Without heavy equipment and without extreme investment, if the land's not already fertile, it's going to be very tough for a family of two without, again, a lot of equipment uh, to go out and do that on uh, 40 acres. So again, what's the motivation for the big piece of land? Do you have a plan for it? And then the last one I want to talk about real briefly before I move forward on on some other things is less taxes. Uh, Even in rural environments, you're going to pay a hell of a lot more tax on a 40-acre piece of land than a 2-acre piece of land or a 5-acre piece of land. Now, there are places where you can get 40 acres and get ag exemption or it's just so rural or it's out in the sticks far enough that you can mitigate the taxes, but you're still paying more. I guarantee you if you have an exact same house as a guy across the way from you and he has 40 and you have two, you pay less taxes than him because that's how taxes work. So there's that. The other thing with taxes is... If you have 40 acres and you're close to a population center because you want to be, I know some people want their bug out location or their homestead to be miles and miles and miles from population centers. Personally, not so much with me. I don't want to be anywhere near what I would consider a major city, you know, which is cities with a million people or more to me. Uh, I don't want a half a million people. I don't want a hundred thousand. But having a city or a town near me with 40 to 50 thousand actually brings me a lot of advantages. I want that. I just don't want to be surrounded by them. I want that forty to 50,000 city to be like the biggest city in my area and have maybe small towns here and there around me. And the next big city to be, you know, 30, 40, 50, maybe 100 miles out. Even that, though, when you start looking at nice cities that have a lot going for it, or nice large towns that have a lot going for it, in that range, if you want to live 10, 20, even 30 minutes outside of them, a lot of times they have a lot of impact on the taxation on the land that's close to their cities, maybe not even in them. Maybe they go out and annex a piece, or maybe the, the, the surrounding townships have uh, have a lot going for them because of the larger city, and that increases the tax base or what have you. So by going and scaling down on your land, you decrease your tax burden if you move closer to these small population centers or even mid-sized population centers if you want to live there. And I think a lot of us really do. Or it's a compromise situation. Could I be happy in the middle of the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana? Yes. 
I absolutely could. Can my wife be happy there? No. Hence, I can't actually be happy there. So we have to find a compromise environment, and going to a smaller piece of land reduces the tax burden in that compromise environment. Um, let's talk about something I think that a lot of people never even consider when they start thinking about land like this. It's a heck of a lot easier to fence an acre or two than 40. And fencing your land gives you a lot of advantages, especially if we're not talking about barbed wire or a nine line or something like that. If we're talking about fencing that's designed to do things like keep animals in like dogs, uh, if you have a two-acre piece of ground completely fenced in, and you can let dogs just completely roam that two acres without any fear that they're going to get away and cause problems with the neighbors or that another dog from off, off your property is going to get inside and get in a fight with them. Giving a dog that much room to roam is pretty cool, as is giving a child. So if you still have kids that are, you know, you know, the age of the backyard play type thing, that's a pretty big yard to play in. It's also kind of... Uh, it's kind of comforting to have your land fenced, at least the majority of it fenced. Or even if you have, you know, that five-acre spread, that mid-sized spread, fencing one or two of it, uh, and having the at least the area surrounding the home and where the chicken coop and everything fenced is, it, it, it will cause a reduction in a lot of problems. You'll have a lot less problem with people accidentally wandering on to your property because they were quote-unquote lost, right? I, I, You know, that kind of nonsense happens. It will help keep some of the uh, annoying wildlife off of your property. Will deer jump a five-foot chain-link fence to get to your garden? Yeah. Are they less likely to come into your garden if you have a five-foot chain-link fence around an acre and your garden kind of centered off of there? Yeah, they are. You're less likely to have problems with that, especially in the uh, the, the springtime where does have fawns that can't follow them because they're not big enough to make the leap yet. So it'll reduce that. It'll reduce the impact of foxes and raccoons, they'll still get in, but less of them will get in. It, it's just a, 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 it slows down that. It again reduces the opportunity for burglars and thieves. So I think it's, now you could say, well I could take my 40 acre parcel and I could fence in two acres of it, but that kind of makes my point, doesn't it? That you, your most important part of your 40 acres is the two around your home. So for the person who doesn't have the option for the, now there's anything wrong with it, but for the person who doesn't have the option, that says a lot about what they can get out of that one or two acres. Let's look at a reasonable sized piece of land. Let's say an acre and a half. Let's say of that acre and a half, you use a half acre for your sheds and everything else. You actually put a full acre under cultivation. You know, permanent crops, annual crops, you name it. You go nuts. You make an acre of it cultivated. You maximize the production of an acre. You will never use everything you produce. You will give away or sell off so much because of the level of production that an acre will give you if it's done right. And I'll tell you what, with intensive production methods, an acre will outproduce two acres that's done kind of sloppily, the way that massive agriculture's done. So if one of your primary goals from the land is to, you know, quote-unquote, live off the land, yeah, it's not like having your own deer lease when you have two acres. It could be, but it probably isn't. Even five acres, it probably isn't like that. But... 
it will let you live off the land from a standpoint of what the land can produce for you. And if you start to do things with alternate protein sources, like bringing goats and maybe a couple goats in for some milk and some chickens, I mean, you could have a ton of chickens on a piece of property that size. Way more than you probably want to deal with. Uh, possibly even bringing in a, a small one of the small breeds of cattle as a milk cow or something like that. Uh, if you start to do basic land management techniques to start to improve the, pro- the population of things like squirrels and use squirrels as a protein source, you start to get an awful lot out of an acre and a half. And I'll tell you, you'd probably be better suited only putting a half of an acre under cultivation, even if you have 40 acres. Unless you're going to be doing you know, small-scale agriculture to the point where you're selling stuff, a half acre of cultivated land can definitely outproduce your consumption. You think about what the Dervaises do. They have a tenth of an acre under cultivation. They have a one-fifth acre lot. The house takes up some space. The driveway takes up some space. They've pretty much maximized every other inch of it. A tenth of an acre under cultivation. Increase that to two-tenths. They produce six to 8,000 pounds of food. How much food can you, especially vegetable matter, how much vegetable matter can you eat in a year? You add some eggs into that and some meat and some things like that from, from, from chickens or uh, maybe breeding rabbits or maybe putting a pond in and doing some aquaculture or just doing a fish pond and growing some fish. You start adding that all together, and absolutely an acre can can support the majority of the needs of a family. Is it is it ideal? Would it be better to have more? Sure it would. Uh, but an acre will give you an awful lot. On your one to two acre spread, it's also really easy to develop what I call impactful water features. What do I mean by impactful? Um, let's say you have a, you kind of a half acre plot. I don't care if your lot's actually two acres, but you're, you're managing a half acre segment. You, you, you kind of roped it off or fenced it or whatever and said, okay, I'm going to focus on for the next two years improving this half acre before I move on to the next piece of land I can really start to work on. And one of the things that's important to you is have kind of a backup system there for irrigation of that half acre. If you go and dig a hole, and that's pretty much all you have to do, and you dig a hole that's about three feet deep at the deepest point, has edges that are about maybe, oh, I don't know, 18 inches deep, and uh, make that hole about 15 foot wide by 30 feet long, which is not that big. Get a tape measure. Look at it on the ground. Uh, Don't shape it like a rectangle just because ponds don't look good shaped that way. Buy a liner, and you'll need a liner for a 15 by 30. You'll need about a 30 by 50 foot liner. a good long-term warranted liner that's going to last 20 years or more, uh, that's going to cost you about $700. Not, a, not cheap, but not a huge investment. You lay that liner down, you surround the edge with rocks, and uh, you fill it in, and then you, uh, with, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, kind of some rocks on the bottom, make it look good and all, and then fill it up with water. That'll hold about 6,000 gallons of water. 6,000 gallons if you got to a point where you had a failure of your water supply and you needed to continue to uh, to use your pond as an irrigation source. Now, your pond's going to start to get drained down, but 6,000 gallons of water will take that half-acre plot, assuming it's not 100% planted. It's got beds here and beds there, and provide for irrigation for a very long period of time. Trying to do a pond that size and get irrigation capability out of it for let's say 40 acres, that pond is a drop in the bucket. It's not going to help hardly at all. 
you're going to be back to that same small piece of land that you're able to provide for. So why not consider starting there in the first place? The other side of that is, if you put in an acre pond on a 40-acre spread, trust me, folks, I'm not putting it down. I'd love to have it. But to keep that pond full, you are absolutely dependent on rain. The amount of water in there is insane. A one-acre pond, 12 foot deep. I, I, I haven't never done the calculation, but it's it's probably the millions of gallons versus the thousands of gallons. You, you, I don't care how deep your well runs, filling that up impossible an impossibility. In a drought, it's going to be begin to be drained down. Uh, if you have a good deep well. Keeping that pond full that I just talked about is not much bigger of a deal than keeping your backyard above ground pool full. In fact, a lot of above ground pools are right in that range. So you have a beautiful water feature. It's capable of supporting uh, extended uh, irrigation in case of, of a loss of water supply for some re- whatever reason that might be. Additionally, that small pond is going to have a very large ecological effect on that piece of land. Having that little 15 by 30 foot pond on 40 acres, the amount of wildlife that it's going to attract, that wildlife's not going to really affect the full 40 acres very much. It won't affect 10. It won't affect 5 on the outskirts of it. Because the frogs and the different organisms that are drawn to that water feature are only going to venture so far from it, and their population is going to be capped on based on what it can support. So if you want frogs going in and cleaning out your, your insects at night, you need the pond to be located relatively close to the uh, to the plants that you're growing that you want them to patrol for you. So that little pond can have a dramatic impact on that half-acre segment. Now, maybe when you do your next half-acre segment, if you want the same impact because you're doing the same type of things there, you need to put in a second pond and spend another 1000 bucks. But that beach having to put in, on 40 acres, ponds that size, right? It's not even an option. So think about that as you think about what you can do with a smaller piece of land. And uh, hopefully I don't get rear-ended here because people are doing crazy things on the highway again. All right. Um, Okay, I'm not going to get hit by the giant truck behind me. Uh, Let's go to the next one. Sorry about the distraction there. I also think that with a smaller piece of land, it's easy to do what I call know the pulse of your land. The smaller the ecosystem that you're managing, um, the harder it is to create true ecological stability, but it can be done. But the easier it is to detect something's wrong. It's, you'll, you'll be more likely to notice that disease affecting one of your trees when you have a mini orchard with 20 different trees on it than when you have a massive orchard of 80 acres. You'll see it, you'll be able to identify it, and immediately take corrective action to eradicate it so that it doesn't affect your other plants. And I think that you'll also be encouraged to do things in a more diverse manner. If you have 80 acres, then planting a giant field of two acres of corn just doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you only have two acres, you're not going to plant it all in corn. So the smaller piece of land is going to encourage you to look and, and, and dig and what can I plant, what can I grow, how can I create four seasons of harvest. You're going to put greater biodiversity into your land. As you increase the biodiversity, as you bring in things like aronias and, and kiwi and different grapes and different trees and plants and uh, maybe juju fruit and, and all these different kind of exotic things that are available to us now in the United States that grow in temperate environments that we can grow in most of the United States, and you bring all of that in, 
When you create that biodiversity, you create stability, and you create an ability for yourself to look and identify problems as soon as they pop up. It's like if you're a webmaster managing 100 websites, looking at the analytics and the traffic flows and patterns, you're a lot less likely to notice, site, notice a site's about to go in decline and something's wrong, and you won't notice until it's you know, like an extreme situation. But if you only manage one or two sites and you're watching the analytics on those websites every day, then as soon as something starts to trend, you're able to identify it, and within a day or two, you know, is it truly a trend, is it an aberration, is it something that you're, you're starting to backtrack and find out, did we lose traffic from a, a particular source? How do I correct this? Same thing with managing land. When it's that small piece of land and you're intimately familiar with it, because you're able to walk the entire property every single day, as soon as something starts to go wrong, you know it. And then if it's not just about what goes wrong. It, you'll become very intimately familiar with your land. You'll start to very quickly realize that, you know, I planted these two trees. I planted one on one side of the property, one on the other side of the property. The, the weather's been the same for both of them, basically. The soil's very similar. I've treated them the same way. I've irrigated them the same way. But this one's doing much better than the other. And then you start to say, well, what's the difference? Is it solar exposure? Is it there's rocks around it? Is it... The it is shaded. Is there? Is it moisture over here beyond my irrigation? So you'll start to become able to follow permaculture principles much faster because you'll be able to identify the aberration. And the aberration is what you're looking for. It's what tells you what to do next. It's what tells you what's working and not working. So I think that's another inherent advantage to smaller tracts of land. Another thing is it's easier to defend, and that's day-to-day defense against vandals and thieves or, or shit at the fan defend against a roving gang of thugs if we ever, God forbid, come to that. If you have 40 acres, it's really easy to start spreading things way out, not keeping things, especially things that are maybe not as tidy as you'd like them to be, like a chicken coop further away from the home. All that does is open up the opportunity for varmints of both four and two legged variety to steal from you. It also opens up the potential for people to start raiding your crops and things like that. When you have everything very close to a home, especially fenced in, it's a lot more intimidating of an environment for somebody to come in and steal your produce or or steal your your property. For, you know, honestly, if you end up in a tactical situation where, for one reason or another, you actually just have to defend your property and keep people off of it, even if it's not, let's say, violent tactical. Let's say. It's um, you got into a situation with a real pandemic, not like this flu thing that we're dealing with right now, with less than one percent people being you know fatally infected and it just being overblown. We get in a real one because folks, a real pandemic is a possibility, and you decide you're going to go into self quarantine. If people start kind of wandering around, it's easier to maintain a quarantine on that small piece of land with fencing and with other security measures than it is to prevent people from getting in to your property unknown, kind of on the back 40 or what have you. So it's not always advantageous that way. I mean, obviously, if you had 80 acres and you located your your homestead in the dead center of that and uh, put up a lot of fencing and layers and things like that, you 
could insulate yourself greater from surrounding populations. So there's always a trade-off. But when it comes right down to it, if all you have to worry about is securing an acre or two, that's a lot easier to do. It'll also force you, again, to put all of the things that are important to you closer to your home. The things that are important to you are the things that more people are likely to try to steal or damage. So you'll have line of sight to most of the things on your property that you need to defend. Again, easier to defend overall. The next thing with that smaller piece of land to think about is it, you know, it may not even matter in a rural area if your motivation is similar to mine. Again, I'd like that 40 acres of land to basically have my own backyard hunting grounds, my own deer lease and, you know, places to tromp through looking for bushy-tailed squirrels and uh, kind of be able to get away from home just by walking out the door. Well, if you live in a place where, let's say, your backyard butts up against uh, state forest, national park, uh, Corps of Engineer land, any type of land that's been set aside by the government to, to be kind of set aside as a preserve, especially if it's open to, open to recreational activities, yeah, it brings people into your area. But uh, far less than it does in suburbia, right? And you have access to all that land. Well, you don't have to uh, directly, anyway, pay the tax bill. Now, you're paying for it like the rest of us are. But you're paying for it anyway. They're the ones that set that system up. We're put into a situation where we might as well utilize the system that we're funding, even if we don't like it. So any type of land like that. The other thing to look at is maybe you go and you find a two-acre piece of land, and what's behind it is a cliff, you know, down or up, a mountain. And if that mountain is, you know, steep enough, or even if it's a hill, it's just unbuildable, where no one would build until they went over the other side of that hill or that mountain, or there's no utility access or roads or what have you. If you're in a certain rural environment, certain land is just considered undesirable from a developmental standpoint. Well, you may find out that you can buy that land, or that somebody owns that land that doesn't really care who goes on it, has no intention of selling it, he's just keeping it and making it kind of an age reserve. You may find out it's actually put aside by the state a lot of times in situations like that. Or you may find out that, you know what, you're not going to be able to get your hands on it or even use it, but no one's ever going to build there, and maybe that's good enough for you. I don't know about you, but out of my bug out location, there's people down the road and up the road from me, to the left and right of my house. And, and there's one that's kind of close, it's pretty far off, but it's not real, you know, it's not it's not unseeable. If you, if you kind of move and look and crane your neck, you can kind of tell where he's at. Um, but without being able to directly see them from my front porch, I don't feel crowded. And honestly, if I could look up and down and see them, I wouldn't feel crowded. What makes me feel crowded on, on my property is if I can see people on four sides of it, or even three. I don't really want to look out the front and see anybody or the back and see anybody. Well, in front of me is a cliff, and behind me my land butts up against a, a, a slope on a mountain that is just ridiculous. The guy down the road from me actually owns it. I don't even know why he bought it, other than I think like me, he doesn't want to risk anybody going back there, but there's just no way to build there. So, I'm in this situation where my five acres makes me feel like I have a hundred. Now, I don't have access to all of it, but I have the serenity from it, and I have the insulation from it. So, in a rural area, it may not really matter. The other thing about rural areas, maybe you don't have a lot of land around you you can use. Maybe you're not up against the National Park or National Forest. How far away is it to drive? I've got the uh, Washington National Forest about 15-minute drive from my place. 
there's millions of acres of open public land there to use. So I have access to that land. I'd much rather have it be closer to me, but I'll take what I can get under my circumstances. Or I've actually seen land where you see things like national forest walking distance from property. So yeah, you might have to walk down the public street, but basically you can throw your rifle over your shoulder and go hunting uh, by walking to the forest. Or walk, and, and the other thing is water. A lot of times if you're on a stream, obviously you, you don't have anybody building in the center of that stream. And that a lot of times water makes you feel like you have a great deal more land. Good-sized lake, a one-acre lakefront lot. Um, as long as you're not in too much tourist central, that's an amazing open space that you, you can't build on a lake. All right, so those are some things to consider about your rural properties where the smaller piece of land may not even impact your real reason for wanting the large purse, uh, parcel of land in the first place. Another thing, I, we'll talk about kind of selecting land right now, especially with smaller tracts and some thoughts on that. One of the things I think you really need to do is consider how the land lays. Not all two-acre lots are the same. There's a big difference between a relatively square two-acre lot and uh, a 75-foot wide, great, huge, long strip that's considered two acres. They have the same surface area, but you're going to be a lot more crowded from the sides by neighbors. And the land is not going to be quite as usable. So one of the things you really have to consider is how does the land lay? What are your elevations? Is it dead flat? Sometimes people really like dead flat. In a lot of situations, dead flat, not so much. You know, maybe you're looking for a little bit of slope. Maybe you're looking for what I was looking for, which was a couple acres that are sloped but usable and three acres that are kind of steep and, and really wild. Uh, that makes the little the little five-acre patch I have feel bigger than it's shaped like that. Uh, but it's very much a square. It's actually kind of a rectangle. And I like that, again, because it keeps people pushed out. Where I looked at a lot, when I looked up there, I looked at a lot of two-acre lots, and I was open to a two-acre lot with the right scenario. But the houses were as close to each other as they are in suburbia because everybody's land was a strip. And uh, that just didn't feel the same as a lot that was more of a square or a rectangle or a trapezoid, that type of thing. So that's something to really consider uh, a great deal is how the land lays. Another thing is consider the community itself. I talk about this whenever I talk about finding a bug-out location or a homestead property. Don't buy property without really understanding the community around it, the direct and the indirect community. The direct community are people that you could walk to their front door and knock on the door and say, hey, how you doing? My name's Jack. I just moved in. Wanted to introduce myself to my family. I just bought the old Edwards place up there. Right? That's your direct community. You, you really need to get a feel for your direct community. They're going to be the people you're going to share a large part of your life with or not. And if you're kind of a hermit and you really just want to be left alone, will they leave you alone? Do they have, you know, random barbecues throughout the summer where everybody goes to somebody's house? And are you going to be kind of ostracized if you don't show up? Do you like that? Do you not like that? I'm not telling you how to think. I'm just telling you you need to know. Go talk. Just knock on a couple doors before you put an offer in. That's all I'm saying. Hey, I'm Jack. I'm thinking about buying that place. How long have you lived here? Do you like it? You know, what was the old neighbor like? What didn't you like about it? Stuff like that. If you're a church-going person, where do you go to church? 
If you're not a church-going person, don't ask that in the South because you'll be invited to church every week for the rest of your life if you ask that question and you don't mean it. Ask ask who the schools are like. Just general neighborly chit-chat. And it's not so much the answers that are important, it's the person's response to you. Do they seem distrusting? Expect a little bit of that out in the country. They're going to be a little bit distrusting. It's a tighter community. People know each other. Do they seem warm and receptive? What you know? What do you guys do? What do you guys like to do? What do you guys do for recreation? Do you guys hunt, fish, whatever it is that you're interested in? You know, ask those questions. It'll give you a good feel for the community. If you have like three or four creepy freaking neighbors that you think are making meth in the basement, you may need to look for another property. Well, you're not going to know that unless you make a few door knocks and just just say hi and just say why you're there. Uh, very few people are really going to object to that. They'd like an opportunity to look you over before you bought the property too. And uh, you might as well ask now because you're going to know sooner or later. And you can either know before or after you spend $100,000 or more. I'd rather know first. Um, and then a couple different little rules that I have for buying property. And again, this is for just about any property. Number one, no HOAs. No homeowners association. Homeowners associations are evil. I hate them. I despise them. I don't think they should exist. I'm too libertarian to say that they should be illegal, but I think they should be drummed into nothingness by people refusing to buy homes where they exist. Where all these people are so worried about their home values, can't sell the damn thing because no one's stupid stupid enough to buy a place where some old lady with blue hair that doesn't have anything better to do than bitch goes around and decides what to complain about on your property. Down to things like what color your mailbox has to be, how high your grass has to be cut, whether or not you're even allowed to have a front yard without a certain amount of grass in it. Uh, I've heard HOAs where people have problems because they park their cars in their driveway. They want all the cars in the garages at all times. There's some real nonsense, and I don't care how reasonable the HOA is today, a group of uh, HOA Nazis could take it over tomorrow. And I have a guy I work with who's an anal retentive little pain in the ass. Straight up, this guy's a pain in the ass. He's the last guy that I would want telling me how to run my property. And he's on his HOA board. He's pretty young to be on an HOA board. I think he's uh, I think he's in his late 20s. He's an IT guy. That explains his anal retentive pain in the ass part. Um, he says, I'm there to make sure that people like that don't cause problems. And I'm thinking, you know what? If you were running an HOA I was living in, I'd probably have you buried in a hole in the ground within three months. That's the kind. Nobody wants to do that kind of thing. Nobody wants to be on an HOA board and tell other people how to live and how to arrange their homes unless they're an anal retentive pain in the ass that wants to enforce their will on other people. HOAs are evil. I've said enough. Stay away from them. Look for a low probability of, of what's called annexation. Annexation is where, let's say we have a little piece of unincorporated property, the only taxes really paid there are to the county. Um, so taxes are extremely low. There's no city tax. There's no city uh, waste disposal. There's no city uh, water. Everybody's using septic tanks or wells and uh, what have you. Or if there's water, it's a county-level water project. Um, it's that type of an environment. And the land's there, and it's being developed, and the community is growing, and there's a tax base growing. Well, it'll often be the case where the closest town or city will go into a process called annexation, which basically means they take it over, they claim it. Uh, they go in, and usually it takes some kind of approval from the people living there, uh, but that 
is usually easy to gain in the wrong type of community where people think it's a good thing. Right? Because, oh yeah, my taxes are only going to go up a little bit, yes, for the first couple of years, in the sucker's play, and then you're going to be paying the same taxes that they pay everywhere else. Uh, because then they get, you know, higher level of emergency response, greater street maintenance, things like that. If those are important to you, then move to a place that provides that initially. Don't move to a rural community and then try to uh, to help the process of annexation for people that maybe don't like it. So, so look for the level of service you want going in. If you want those services, find a place where they're at. If you don't want, go somewhere outside of them. If you're not concerned with them, if what you want is low taxes and skin control, and hey, if my road gets that bad, I'll hire a guy with a bulldozer to fix it. And if I have to do that once every five years, I'd rather be in control of it and know it gets done right and have a direct relationship with the person doing it than having the city supposedly take care of it for me. If you want that, then make sure you pick an area with a low probability of annexation. How do you do that? You look for places that are being settled with low population density. If you find a place like I do where where there's no HOA, but there's what's called a land covenant, where one of the land covenants on this entire mountain is no place can have less than five acres per single occupancy home and no multi-occupancy residence. So no duplexes, right? You can't have that. Uh, you can't have a little, you know, like triplex, a little apartment building. You can't take your five-acre lot, cut it up into five little holes, and put five houses on it, right? That type of thing. That's going to keep the population density low. So there's only so much you can tax people living in the middle of rock mountain land to provide their own water and sewer. And since that the systems are already put in, you can't offer them water and sewer. Putting it in there would be extremely expensive. So basically, I'm in a situation... But it's a very low probability of annexation because the town looks at it, and Hot Springs would look at it and go, you know, if we annex this, we have to provide all these services there. Uh, we really can't afford to put water and sewer in up those mountain roads. It's not, it's not worth doing because everybody's up there self-sufficient. There's only a, a handful of people up there. Uh, even if we, tax, we tripled their taxes, which would be hard to get away with and, and, and get the ordinance passed to, uh, to get the annexation done, uh, it's a net loss. We'll lose money by by annexing that piece of property. So, and, and then the, the kids that live there, the few of them that there are, they don't go to our schools anyway. They go to schools, you know, up the way from there. So, it's there's just no, no good can come from this from an economic standpoint. Understand that governments are moved by economics. Uh, believe it or not, they actually do think about profit and loss, just not yours. And they don't care whether uh, they're profitable. They care whether they can increase their receipts with, without increasing their burden. So if you look for property that fits that mold, your probability of being annexed is relatively low. This is only really important if you want what I wanted, which was to live kind of close to a fairly large population center. I would say a mid-sized population center. If you're out in the middle of the sticks, it's not really that much of a concern. The next thing, though, to think about is eminent domain. This is why I don't like highway frontage. I really don't, even state highway frontage. A lot of times people advertise state highway frontage. They're they're proud of it. Um, To me, anything that's out on main roads, uh, main arterial flow, has the potential for an eminent domain to come down on it one day. Now, I know technically any property does, but it would be really hard 
and really pointless for anyone to exercise eminent domain in the middle of uh, of my mountain in Arkansas. It just doesn't make sense. So I would try to find property that reduces the probability of eminent domain. Odds are, if you reduce the probability of annexation, you're going to reduce the probability of eminent domain. Um, if you look at the places that this stuff's being done, it's not really being done out in the sticks. Eminent domain is usually used to put in or widen roads or to put in like uh, shops and convenience centers and stuff that they've lied about the Constitution and said it's okay to do that for. Uh, eminent domain is a problem. It's something you need to consider, and uh, I would make sure you that you do consider it before you buy any piece of property. Uh, does the area that you're in have a history of doing it? What are your you know, has the state taken any any steps that you would be moving to uh, to uh, to mitigate eminent domain, or are they friendly to the concept? Some states are uh, pretty friendly to eminent domain. Uh, Texas, I hate to say it, for all that we got going for us here, uh, they're one of the more friendly to eminent domain states that there is. They've not really made any any moves yet to uh, to mitigate eminent domain. There's a big move in the state house right now by people trying to get that done, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So. I would be more concerned about eminent domain in a place like Texas than I would in Montana. Just because it's a different environment at the state level. So that's the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about to consider. But overall, what I'd like you to do today is just kind of reevaluate your long-term goals for owning that piece of land and decide, do you really need 50 acres or 60 acres or 150 acres? Not that you would like to have it. Trust me, folks. Again, if I could find a 1,000 acres of land that I could afford and it made sense, and I'd still probably only settle a couple of it, but I'd love to have the land. Right, But there are a lot of headaches, expenses, and costs that go with it. And we also have to live in a world of reality where maybe that's not really an option for you right now. But maybe you can find that little acre or two-acre parcel. And I want you to understand just how much you can do with it and just how big of an impact it can have on your future, especially if you're able to acquire it in a way where you pay for it, you pay for the house on it, and you own it, and it's yours. And you don't have to worry about some government body coming in and seizing it or jacking your tax is up to the point where you can't afford it anymore. And once you have that and you have the self-sufficiency that comes with a piece of property like that and the low cost associated with it, you have an ability to do a lot less work in the conventional sense of it and do a lot more building of your home and your family and your souls and your soulmate soul, right? That's what this is really all about is living that better life. So with that, I'll go ahead and sign off. This has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.